counted a high joy to be with you this morning, to be engaged in the worship of our Lord. I'd like to, this morning, uh, travel some, at least for maybe a couple of verses, in the 12th chapter of Romans. And while you're turning to Romans chapter 12, I'd just like to make a, an introductory comment or two that I don't normally do. Uh, I believe, if, if memory serves, that my first visit here, I was seven years old. Um, I believe that's correct and have come here off and on over the years until uh, we joined here almost two years ago. I'll say this, and I don't say this for any form of pride or, or glory, there is no singing in my experience like singing at Bethel. It was that way when I was seven, it's that way today. Now faces have changed, um, some faces aren't here, uh, some faces are older, my face is older. Folks, when you travel like I do and you visit different places, it reminds you that there are things we ought never take for granted in the house of God. And the Lord has blessed us here with a, a rich gift when it comes to our song service that I think it is of the highest order I've ever been around and I've ever, ever experienced. And when it comes to worship, singing is of the highest order of worship. As Brother Gary mentioned in his prayer, it's what we're going to be doing in heaven. I, I cannot imagine what that first note in heaven is going to sound like, how sweet it's going to be, how rich the sound will be, but the Bible tells us that it's a new song. It never fades, it never grows old, and because of that, friends, when I worship him here in song, it reminds me, or it, it should remind me, I hope it always does, that what we're doing right now when we sing is of the very same substance and of the very same spirit and of the very same property is what we're going to have in heaven. The only difference is my voice won't crack, my voice won't get old, I won't get tired, and he'll be in front of me and I'll be praising him world without end. Never let these things slip because, friends, it's a treasure to have in this world that we can do something of an order and a magnitude similar to that we're going to do in heaven. And I thank God for that, and I hope you do as well. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. In these two verses, and I don't know if we're going to get past these two verses, but in these two verses, the Apostle Paul is moving forward from uh, a place that he's been building to for 11 chapters. And you'll forgive me for not plowing through the first 11 chapters this morning, but Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul is building what he's about to say on everything that he said before. Now, if you go back and you look at what he said before, he has laid out for 11 chapters one of the richest doctrinal treatises in all the Word of God. He talks about everything when it comes to grace from our election and our foreknowledge to our predestination to our justification to the shedding of Christ's blood, the new birth as it takes place in our life, and ultimately the glorification that we're going to have with him some sweet day. And when you look at all those manifold things that uh, Paul lays out, everything from justification to glorification, when you look at that whole set 
Paul says, I beseech you, therefore. Because of all this, he says, I beseech you. The word beseech means I beg you. And we don't use that term much anymore, but the term I beg you or I beg of you is basically saying I implore you in the most earnest way that I know how that based on what we have already investigated together that you listen very closely to what I'm about to say. Because when you think about what God has called upon us to do in this world, one of the things that Paul lays out for us is that what God calls upon us to do is never something that he did not first himself undergo and experience like us. When he calls upon us to walk faithfully in this world, he walked faithfully in this world. When he calls upon us to overcome temptation, he overcame temptation. And there's nothing that we can ever say that we face in our life that God has not already seen and God himself has not already faced when it came to him living in this present world. One of the things that I uh, struggle with is when somebody is an expert on something with no experience. Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with people who have all the answers of how to raise children who don't have any children? Do you struggle with people who have all the answers of how to run a company who don't know, who've never run a company? You can sit out there stone-faced all you want to. I think you struggle with this. I know I do. It bothers me when people are an expert on something that they have no experience about. Well, friends, God's an expert on things, and he has all the experience for these things because there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to man, and there is no temptation we have not faced that God himself has not tasted that because we have not and high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So Paul is saying, based on everything I've said, I beseech you, I beg of you, I implore you, and he does this by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. Not the mercy of God, but the mercies, plural, of God. God, in his manifold mercies unto us, has bestowed upon us things that we can't even begin to fathom. When I think about times that he has had pity on me, that I didn't even know it, the times that he has had compassion on me when I wasn't aware of it, I mean, you think about how, how often in your life, just use a couple of examples, how often in your life have you been on the highway just going along, maybe it's your same commute you do to work, and you didn't know it, but God moved one little thing to keep you from having an accident and dying on the road. I don't know how often that happens. But I can look back in my life and tell you through accidents that I've had that he was merciful unto me and sparing my life. And how many times did he have mercy on me that I didn't even have an accident? Another example of that is when you're uh, in a far-off place and you don't have to go very far to get in a far-off place. I mean, Austin's a far-off place, folks. I mean, that's just all there is to it. I mean, every time I go through Austin, I cringe, I shudder, and I think, thank God when it's in my rearview mirror. Now, if you like Austin, God bless you. I don't. Anyway. How many times have you been in a place like an Austin, a Dallas, a Houston, a Denver, a San Francisco, an L.A., a Chicago? Maybe even you were crazy enough to go to New York City. God bless you. How many times in a strange, far-off place like that? I know some of you have been to New York City. It's all right. I didn't lose anything there. I have no desire to go and find what I didn't lose. Moving on. My point is, in those places, there's danger all around. There's evil all around. And there are things lurking in different corners. And God, in his manifold mercy unto us, spares us and delivers us from those things in ways which we didn't even know. Now, there's things that I can point to in my life that I know he's had mercy on me, 
But there's countless others that I know that he's had mercy on me that I wasn't even aware of because that's how gracious our God is to us. And because of that, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I beg of you to do. He says, I beg of you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now this command that Paul gives is a, uh, a very curious one to me. And the reason it's curious is because what he implores us to do and how he describes it. He doesn't say present your thoughts to God. He doesn't say present your prayers to God. He doesn't say present your spirits to God. He says present your bodies unto God as a living sacrifice. It's, uh, it's interesting to me, and I'm so glad I don't hear this much anymore, but it's interesting to me when folks say, well, I, I, I'm not going to be at church, but I'll be with you in spirit. I, I don't understand that. Because, friends, my spirit goes where my body goes. My, they, they're inseparable. So wherever I am in body, there my spirit is. And while they may not get along, because as Paul says in Romans 8, they war against each other, for the creature itself is made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who is subjected the same in hope, my spirit, my creature inside of me, it struggles against this flesh. And the flesh wars against the spirit. But they're, they're hand in hand. They're united. Until the moment of death and that release, they will be forever joined until that time. And friends, where my body is, there my spirit is. So when someone says, I'll be with you in spirit, I've, I've always been tempted to do this. There was a, uh, God bless her heart, she's in glory now. Her, her spirit's in glory, her body's in the ground. But a lady I used to pastor in Georgia used to tell me that. She said, well, preacher, I probably won't be here for about another month. And I said, okay. And, you know, it was, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this. She said, but I, I'll be sending my prayers to you. I'll be sending my thoughts to you, and my spirit will be with you. And I thought, how do you send thoughts, and how do you send prayers? I'd just rather have someone praying for me. But anyway, one day I was so tempted to say, Sister, well, I won't be here either. And if I understood this sister, she'd have probably said, what? I'd have said, but it's all right. I'll be with you in spirit. By the way, you tell me how my spirit preached while I was gone. I mean, it, it's just, it's impossible to be anywhere without your body. But if you notice how Paul describes our body in Romans 8, he says something very different here than he said throughout the book of Romans. He says, to present our bodies unto God, a, 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 a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable. He calls our body holy and he calls our body acceptable. That's very different from anything he said in Romans before this. Let's go to uh, at least one place. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 25, the Apostle Paul has been describing the, the wrestling that he faces, the wrestling that he goes through on a daily basis. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from what? The body of this death. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind I myself serve the Lord, but with the body the law of sin. The Apostle Paul doesn't say he was a wretch, he doesn't say he used to be a wretch when he was Saul of Tarsus. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Right now, even as the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to you, I'm a wretched man. Why am I a wretched man? Because I live in a body of death. I have something chained to me that weighs me down every single day of my life. And he says, this body of death is what serves the law of sin. It's what corrupts me. It's what uh, holds me back on a regular basis. Now, in... Romans 12, he says, your body is holy, acceptable unto God. 
You find also in Romans 8, as we've already uh, quoted, that the creature was made subject to vanity. He calls our body vanity. He calls our flesh vanity. Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 21, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. So how can something that has no good thing in it, how is nothing more than a body of death and full of vanity, how can that thing be holy and acceptable unto God? That's why this command is very interesting to me because Paul is imploring us, he's begging us to use something that is a body of death, something that is vanity, something that is full of sin as a holy, acceptable thing. Does that strike you as interesting? It does me. And I'd like to maybe use a couple of examples to prove the point of how it is that our body can be holy and acceptable unto God. If you'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I don't intend to read all this, but if you go, it's 1 Corinthians 7 is a very long chapter. It describes a situation in 1 Corinthians 7 as, as it revolves around marriage. That here's what you do in certain circumstances when it comes to marriage. And Paul focuses on when you have a believing spouse that has an unbelieving spouse. Like say there's a believing wife that has an unbelieving husband or a believing husband that has an unbelieving wife. What do you do in those circumstances? And as Paul goes through that and he begins to build those layers, he basically, in a nutshell, summarizes it this way. He says, if the believing spouse, whether it's a husband or whether it's a wife, will remain faithful, they will actually do something for their unbelieving spouse and they'll do something for their children that they're going to have. <clears throat> children pay very close attention to this. When I was very young, my father gave us instruction growing up, and that instruction was this. When you go to find a spouse, he didn't tell us to find a primitive Baptist. He said, find somebody who is God-fearing. Because if you have somebody who is God-fearing, you can work through things. But if someone's not even God-fearing, there's no basis, there's no common ground to build from. But if someone's God-fearing, you can work through differences of belief. You can work through differences of uh, uh, worldly things, whether it's finance or whatever the case may be. And when you have a God-fearing spouse and you talk with one another, you can actually reason through things. But let's say that you didn't do what my father did. Let's say I didn't do what my father said to do, and I found myself with a wife who was not God-fearing. You all know Sister Angela's God-fearing. This is not real. This is a hypothetical situation. The goal is not to just beat that person into submission. The goal is not to live like that person lives, but the goal is to be an example that that person will see, perhaps follow, but also be benefited by. You realize that our lives can be a benefit to others even when we don't realize it? Our lives can bless others even when we don't realize it? Let's say that a husband has an unbelieving wife or a wife has an unbelieving husband. It says that if she will not leave him or he will not leave her, it says the unbelieving spouse shall be sanctified by the believing wife. And it says, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. It says that your children will be holy and not unclean by your faithfulness, and your spouse, though not a believer, will be blessed by your behavior. And children, listen to this. If you marry somebody who is not a primitive Baptist, and you marry somebody who may or may not be God-fearing, do not leave the example of the kingdom of God in faithfully following after it all the days of your life. 
Who does know whether you might bless your spouse and bless your children by your faithfulness? I'm tired, friends. You forgive me for this. I'm tired of losing our young ones because they have followed after a spouse in the ways of the world rather than encouraging their spouse to follow after the ways of the kingdom of God. Friends, this is a precious thing that we have in God's house. It's a precious thing that God has given to us in our life. And Paul says that our family can be holy and sanctified by our behavior. Now, I have a question. If that spouse is still unbelieving, is that spouse holy in their own behavior? No, they're not. Are the children perhaps holy based on the lifestyle they're living? No, but they'll be a blessing because of the believing person in the household. Paul is using language to, des to describe to us how something that is generally thought of as unholy, unsanctified, can be holy and sanctified by what? By behavior. And friends, because I cannot get away from this old body that I'm in, I can't change the properties of this body. I can't make this body holy. I can't make this body without spot. But by behavior, my body can be used in a holy and acceptable way before God. Let me ask you a question. When you were singing songs this morning, did you sing those only with your spirit or was your body engaged? Your body was engaged. Your body was engaged in breath. Your body was engaged in, in thought as you read the words on the page. Your body was engaged in going through the very syllables that you were singing. And friends, this body that's nothing more than a body of death through behavior was done in a holy way. Through behavior was done in an acceptable way. One of the things that we should never fall victim to is say, well, I just couldn't help it. Well, I just couldn't, I couldn't do otherwise. I'm just a sinner. I'm just a wretched sinner. Yes, we're wretched sinners. But by behavior, friends, our lives can be lived as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Notice what Paul says about this when he says it's a living sacrifice. You know, God, if he had so desired and so chose, he could have required anything of us. He could have required us to give our lives for him. But what God requires of us is to live our lives for him. This is a sacrifice that is not a one and done. It's a sacrifice that goes on and on. You know, every sheep, every goat, every bull, every heifer that was sacrificed in the Old Testament, it was a one and done. That animal gave its life, gave its blood, and that was the end of the sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that goes on and on all the days of our life. Uh, I, use this, I use this analogy years ago in Arkansas. And, uh, my wife said it didn't go over very well. I'm going to try to use it in Texas. And if it doesn't go over well, I guess I'll retire it. But, uh, you know, the two extremes that people give for not being able to give this sacrifice is either they're too old or they're too young. <laughs> well, I'm too old. I don't have anything left to give. I'm too young. I don't have enough to give. Friends, when it comes to how young we are or how old we are, that's immaterial. What comes to the sacrifice is how we present ourselves to God. Young ones, listen up. If all you have the ability to do right now is say, Lord bless, I assure you that sacrifice is acceptable to God. Old ones, if you don't feel like you have the energy other than to say, Lord bless, friends, that sacrifice is acceptable unto God. When it comes to uh, the young, sometimes we spend our days in our youth wasting our time on things that come to no profit 
These are the days to spend in service to our Lord. And when we get old and we think we don't have the energy to do as we used to do, friends, those are the days to be an example to those following after so that we all may live a holy, righteous, and godly life before God. And so Paul says this is a living sacrifice. It goes on and on all the days of our life, and he calls it our reasonable service. You know, the world will tell you that what you're doing right now is a very unreasonable thing. It'll tell you that the church is just an unreasonable circumstance. It'll tell you that following after God, well, that's just, that's just asking too much. Friends, He gave everything for us. He gave it all. He didn't give part of it. He gave all of it. And He doesn't require of us to give our everything to Him the way He gave our everything for us because we can't do it. Now, even if I give Him my entire heart, my entire body, my entire mind, and my entire strength, friends, even if I did that, I still haven't done what he's done for me. Because when he gave his mind and when he gave his spirit and when he gave his body and when he gave his strength to me, he actually put those things within me. His strength resides in his children. His mind resides in his children. His spirit, his soul, all that he is. The Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 and verse 3 that we've been made partakers of the divine nature. That means that we have something in us that's who he is. It's his soul, it's his mind, it's his strength. It's his all in all. And one day, friends, when we stand before him in refulgent splendidness and full majesty, I assure you, friends, we'll look like him, we'll think like him, we'll have his uh, very glory and we'll have his very visage imparted unto us. He's going to change our vile body and fashion it like unto his glorious body according to the same power whereby he's able to subdue all things unto himself. And because of that, friends, even if I gave my all unto him, it would not equate to him giving his all unto me. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, he says, For you see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. Friends, he's not richer for having us, but we are much richer for having him. And as, that, as such friends, by his mercies, by the bountiful mercies of God, this is a very reasonable thing that he's asked of us to do. And I know that this verse is oftentimes used to talk about church attendance, and I do think it applies. Our presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice applies to church attendance, but it applies to many other things. I just went over a few moments ago to 1 Corinthians 7, saying that you have the ability to sanctify and to make, consecrate your family by living a righteous and godly life. If in our behavior, holy and acceptable before God, our bodies are presented, might it also help our neighbors? Might it also help our work friends? Might it also help those we come in contact with? It might. Um, one of the things that uh, I tried and miserably failed with my parents, uh, my children are t testing some of these things now, children it won't work. Anything you can think of to try to get one over me, I already thought of it and tried it with my parents. It doesn't work. It didn't work with my father. It's not going to work with your father. Moving on. But I remember there was a, a get-together that a friend of mine was having, and I was about 17 years old. I was able to drive. I was able to be out on my own, had my own truck. My second truck, actually. I wrecked the first one, but moving on. Uh, and I said, I want to go. And my dad said, well, who's going to be there? So I honestly told him who was going to be there. They're all my friends. He said, what are they going to be doing? I said, oh, a little of this, a little of that. That was the wrong answer. And so then he started asking specific questions. Will they be doing this? 
Well, maybe. Will they be doing this? Well, some might. No, you're not going. And I said, but Dad, I could go and be a good example unto them. And here's what Dad said. He said, son, you see that bowl of fruit? And I said, yes, sir. He said, all the fruit in that bowl is good. He said, if I put one bad fruit in that bowl, is that bad fruit going to be turned good by the good fruit or is the bad fruit going to turn the good fruit bad? I said, well, it's going to turn the good fruit bad. He said, you're talking about a bowl of bad fruit with one good fruit going into it. How long will it take for that thing to go bad? Needless to say, I didn't go. Wanted to, but I didn't go. Anyway, point is this. There are some things we don't have the ability to sanctify. There are things we don't have the ability to bless. But friends... When God gives us opportunity, when God gives us things in our life, we have the ability to perhaps bless others through our life by being a living sacrifice unto Him. And people aren't going to see a living sacrifice if my body looks no different than anybody else's, if my life looks no different than anybody else's. But friends, it's a reasonable thing to say that I believe in God. It's a reasonable thing to say that I honor Him. It's a reasonable thing. And I don't have to do it with my lips. My steps will tell a better story than my lips ever will. And friends, when it comes to this, who doth know whether one person might make a difference that might affect an entire region? I mean, I don't know exactly how Jonah looked when he got to Nineveh, but I'm sure he was probably a sight. Would you agree with that? I mean, I'm not going to try to be crude. I'm just going to use biblical language. He had whale vomit all over him, okay? I mean, he was a, a sad-looking man. I mean, he had been in a whale's belly for three days and three nights. He was covered with filth, and he had spent... His entire path from being puked up on shore to Nineveh, running. So he was hot. He had filth all over him. He's a strange-looking man. He wasn't even a, a native of that land, and he comes into that city, and he starts preaching. And when he starts preaching, everybody from the king down to the lowest servant repents in sackcloth and ashes, and the Lord spares Nineveh from the overthrow that he was going to give them. And friends, Jonah wasn't even that good a guy. <laughs> Jonah wasn't a very good guy at all. I mean, the Lord said, go to Nineveh, and he went to Joppa. The Lord said, go to Nineveh, and he went into a ship. So the Lord said, all right, I'll get you there. He got in there free of charge, courtesy of a whale. And when he got there, and he preached, and Nineveh repented, you'd have thought Jonah would have been like, well, that was a good sermon. Everybody listen. That's what a preacher ought to feel when people listen, say, I'm thankful the Lord blessed this sermon. No, he sat down outside the city and said, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were going to spare the city, and I just would rather they be killed. I mean, that's, that's who Jonah was. If you want to sum up Jonah in three sentences, the book of Jonah is summed up this way. I won't go. I will go. I wish I hadn't gone. That's how Jonah can be summed up. And friends, this man, who wasn't even all that faithful, who wasn't even all that uh, honest about what he was doing, the Lord blessed an entire city not to be destroyed. There was a wild woman in, first, in uh, John chapter 4, a woman of Samaria, who had had five husbands and was currently living with somebody she wasn't married to, but she goes back to town and tells everybody in town, I've, come, I've met a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And almost the whole town came out to see him. This wasn't the, the, the mover and shaker of this city. This wasn't a woman of great rapport. This was a very low woman in social esteem, the very low woman of moral character. And yet almost the whole city came out to see Jesus. And when they saw him and they listened to him and they heard him, he stayed there for two whole days talking with them and interacting with them. Friends, if a vomit-covered man who didn't even want to go to Nineveh could have that kind of effect, 
And a woman who is not of great deportment could have that kind of effect. What kind of effect should I have? Or could I have in my life if my steps, being holy and acceptable unto God, are a living sacrifice unto Him? Friends, it's a reasonable service. And when I say it's reasonable, He didn't tell us to do this only. He didn't say, seek ye only the kingdom of God. and He said, seek it first. Seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness first. And all these things shall be added unto you. What things? The things He's been talking about. Food and raiment and all the things and the necessities of life. And then He goes on to say this. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. What prevents me most of the time, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. What prevents me most of the time from my steps being as they should be, as a holy and acceptable sacrifice unto God? Because I'm taking thought for things that I don't need to take thought for. I'm focused on things that I cannot do anything about. Friends, I can't do anything about tomorrow. I can't do anything about things that are higher than myself. But I tell you, there's enough evil, there's enough to occupy me right now that I don't have to think about those things, but if I deal with the evil today in a, in a godly way, if I deal with the despair and the sorrow of today in a godly way, and if people see my head held high in a cold and heartless world, who doth know, friends, whether they might be inspired and they might be blessed to hold their heads high, and may God be glorified in all of these things. And how do we do that? Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to it. <clears throat> There's a lie that the world has been telling all my life. It's probably been telling since time began. And the lie that the world will tell you is you just need to be your own person. Do your own thing. Be yourself. Be your best person. Any of these things sound familiar? Friends, that's not what the world really wants. The world does not want you to be yourself. The world does not want you to be your best person. The world does not want you to be who you are. The world wants you to be like them. This water right now is conformed to this bottle. That means that it takes the shape of the container that it's in. What this world wants is it wants you to take their shape. It wants you to look like them. It wants you to act like them. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4 that there was a time in our past when we were like the Gentiles, where we ran to drunken excess like the Gentiles did. And Peter says, now that we don't, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Uh, was it Thursday? Yes, Thursday, because Friday there were a lot of people out from work. Thursday I was asking certain co-workers, I said, what do you plan to do for your long, long weekend, your, your long holiday? And you could probably guess all the things that they said they were going to do, and not a one of them had anything to do with church. Not a one of them had anything to do with anything godly. Uh, and I'm not saying everything they were going to do was ungodly, but I have a feeling some of the things they were going to do, they were going to do in an ungodly fashion, if you catch my drift, moving on. And they said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to spend time with family. I'm going to go to my... Uh, nephew's uh, graduation party, which we did yesterday. I said, I'm going to go to church. And they went, that's it? I said, pretty much a normal weekend. And they said, so are you not going to do anything? I said, no. And they're like, why not? You have plenty of time. I said, it's not a question of time. It's a question of desire. I have no desire to do those things. And I wasn't doing it to be self-righteous. I was just doing it to make a point that, friends, they think it's strange 
when you don't want to do the same thing on a Friday night or a Saturday night that they do. They think it's strange that you don't want to do something on a holiday that they want to do. They think it's strange that you would spend a free day stuck in church. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm looking forward to this summer? Yes, I'm sure we'll go to Slitterbond. Yes, I'm sure we'll probably go to Fiesta, Texas. Children, do not hold me to this. I'm saying I'm sure it will pro- some of these things will probably happen. But you know what I'm looking forward to this summer? I'm looking forward to Chambers Creek. I'm looking forward to the camp meeting. I'm looking forward to Rich Mountain. Those are the high points, the high days, and the feast times for me this summer. Why? Because those, friends, are the best moments in my life. When I get to be in the house of God time and time again, with the people of God time and time again, and have communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ time and time again. That doesn't look like the world. It doesn't act like the world. It doesn't take the shape of the world. But friends, the world wants you to take their shape, to take their appearance, to take their lifestyle. But Paul says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. I want you to notice the difference in the wording that Paul used here. The world conforms, the kingdom transforms. Because the the kingdom is not about us taking a shape. It's not about us all looking the same. I thank God that not everybody in the kingdom is like me. If you won't amen that, I will. I thank God that not everybody in the kingdom is like me. Yeah, I got one. Anyway, here's my point. It's not important, friends, that you act like me. It's not important that you look like me. It's not important that we do everything exactly the same. What's important, friends, is that we are transformed from something that we were to something that we should be in God's eyes. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I, for the sake of time, I'll just go right to the end. Paul is contrasting two things through 2 Corinthians 3. He's contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He's contrasting the law with the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the, the manifestation of the Testament that we have today. And he even says about that Old Testament, about that law and about what they had, he said it was glorious. It was written and engraven in stones. It was glorious. It was, very, it was pinned by the finger of God and had a lot of glory to it. But at the end of the day, all it was was a ministration of death. All the Old Testament did was pointed out that we deserve to die in God's sight. But when he gets to the ministration of the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, he uses words like this. He said, if the ministration of death be glorious, how much shall the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Kind of sounds like where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. He goes on down, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom in what we have today. But in the very last verse of 2 Corinthians 3, he says, but we all, with open face, as beholding in a glass the glory of the Lord, are by the same Spirit changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. The Apostle Paul says that something happens in this ministration that we have, Something happens in our kingdom experience and in our walk here that he calls a transformation. We are changed from glory to glory. Because when I look in a glass, and that word glass basically means a mirror. If I look in a mirror, what do I see? I see a man that's getting older. I see a man who has less hair than he used to. A man that has more sags and more punches or whatever you want to call than he used to. A man who has less mental cognition than he used to. I mean, I know my prime is so past the rearview mirror, it's disappeared over the horizon. I get that. And I... Good grief. I don't have time to make this point, but I'll make it anyway. If anybody tries to sell you on evolution, tell them to look in a mirror. 
things ain't getting better, they're getting worse. <laughs> I don't look better than I did 20 years ago. I look worse. My car doesn't look better than it did 20 years ago. It looks worse. Friends, things aren't getting better and better. By nature, they're getting worse and worse. But Paul says when we look in a glass, when we look in a mirror, he says, by the Spirit of God, we're changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. How does that happen? Because when you look with an open and honest face in a glass, in a mirror, this is what the mirror looks like. What does that mirror show? It shows a man who is scarred by sin. It shows a man who's tainted by sin. It shows a man who deserves to die. But this mirror continues to show you a man who is pure, a man who is spotless, a man who is holy, a man who came and bore what I should bear, that I would have his visage, that I would have his countenance, that I would have his spirit. And by this mirror, by this glass, I see myself through the very face of Jesus Christ. I can see Christ in me, the hope of glory. And what does that do? It transforms, friends. It doesn't make me a different person than I was before, but the properties are different. Remember, the world conforms. That means it takes the shape. But a transformation has the same uh, substance, but the properties are different. I could take this water, and I could actually put it in the freezer, and it would have the same substance, but the properties are different. It'll turn to ice. Or I could stick it in a furnace, and it still has the same substance, but the properties are different. It turns to steam. It evaporates. Friends, you cannot be somebody other than who you are. You are yourself. But through transformation, we can actually have properties that are honoring and glorifying to God. How do we do that? By the transforming and the renewing of our mind. That means our mind should be filled and our mind should be occupied with things that are honest, things that are holy, things that are godly, things that give uh, 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 rise to spiritual thought. What does the Apostle Paul say in Philippians 4 and verse 8? He says, finally, brethren, if whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, do what? Think on these things. You know, I don't have to work too hard to figure out what people are thinking about. If they walk around with their lips stuck out and their head dragging and their uh, heels clinging to this old world, they're thinking unhappy things. They're thinking things that weigh them down. But friends, it's really hard, and I'm pointing my finger at myself, it's really hard to think about Christ and be weighed down. It's really hard, friends, to think about what Christ did and be weighed down. When I think about Christ and what he did, it puts a spring in my step. It blesses me, friends, to do something that I've never done before. I actually had this thought. I've never had it before when we were having communion last Sunday. Friends, have you ever thought about one of my favorite verses and how it applies to feet washing, I'd never, I never had. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 40 and verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That verse talks about flying by walking. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. That talks about flying or soaring. But the analogy that Isaiah gives is through running and through walking. Do you know how I felt after we washed feet last Sunday? I felt like I could soar. I felt like I could fly. Friends, that has a transformation on how I walk. It has a transformation on how I run. I'm still me. God help me. I cannot be somebody else. I am me. But friends, through things like honest, pure, lovely, and things of good report, 
the virtue that comes with that, the transformation that comes with that. We're able to fly in this world. Not fly under our own strength, but fly the way an eagle flies. He flies on the strength and the power of the air and the current, and we fly through the strength and the power of the Holy Ghost that is given unto us. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. I don't want you to be like me. I don't want you to act like me. I want us all to be transformed and have a property and have a, have a, a way about us that we hold like this and don't let the world and don't let the devil take from us. Friends, we have a precious thing in front of us. We have a precious thing in the midst of us. We have a precious thing inside of us. And we have a precious thing before us. Hold on to those things. And it will have a transforming effect in your life. He says that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is another phrase, and I don't, I'm not going to have time to get into all this, but just bear with me for a few moments. Paul is telling us to prove God's will. To prove it. Now, friends, I believe with all my heart that God's will is just. I believe with all of my heart that God does things according to the good pleasure of His will. I don't want to be like the devil in the garden when he says, well, did God really say this? I don't want to be like that. That's not how we prove it. The way we prove it is by going back and also going forward. How do we prove His will going back? We prove His will going back by looking at all the countless times that God has been with us. What did David do when he wrote in the book of Psalms? He went back time and time again of how the Lord had been with him. He says in Psalm 139, he says, Thou knowest my downsittings, thou knowest mine uprisings. Thou hast beset me both behind and before. David says, when I think about you, you've been all around me. You've been with me when I've been up. You've been with me when I've been down. You've been with me behind. You're with me in the future. He says, and verily there's not a, th a thought in my mind that thou dost not know afar off. And even David says, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. But when I look back, God, you've been there. Friends, has there ever been a time in your life when he has not been good? Has there ever been a time in your life when he hasn't been perfect? Has there ever been a time in your life when he hasn't been acceptable? The answer to those things is no, no, no. And what is it that I should expect going forward? Is that in all these things he's going to be good, perfect, and acceptable in all things going forward? The way we prove Him, friends, is not by questioning Him. That's how we prove a lot of things in this world. That's not how we prove Him. We prove Him by asking Him. What does He say in Malachi chapter 3 when He says, uh, verse 9, Malachi 3 and verse 9, He says, Will a man rob God? He asks that question. Will a man rob God? The answer, that I would think that question is, No, a man won't rob God. A man can't rob God. But he says, Yes, you have robbed me. How have we robbed him, or how had they robbed him? They robbed him by not giving him what was due unto him. He says, you've robbed me by not honoring me with your sacrifices, with your offerings, with your service. He says, but now bring in your tithes. Bring in your free will offerings. Fill up the storehouse and prove me now, he says herewith. How do we prove him? By doing what he's called upon us to do. He says, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so great you won't even be able to contain it. Friends, instead of me getting down in the dumps about what's happening in this life, it's happening in this world, what's happening in my own little existence, may I prove the Lord by beseeching Him to pour out 
of His Spirit upon me, to pour out of His blessing upon me. And friends, things will not only be transformed in my life, they'll be transformed in the life that I live and those that I live around. Friends, the next time you see me down in the dumps, you remind me that I need to be transformed. You remind me that I need to prove God. Because what has He done here? What has He done here? He says in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a precious stone, a sure cornerstone, tried, pre- elect, precious. That word tried means proven. That means when you look through this book, you'll find that he was tried. He was proven time and time again. You'll find that he rose to the occasion time and time again. You'll find that in his darkest hour, he rose to the occasion. You'll find that when his agony was at his greatest He bore forth it to the very end. He drank down the wrath of Almighty God, down to the bitter dregs, so that you and I would never be alone. He was isolated so that I never would be. He was unloved so I never would be. And He was forsaken, friends, so I never would be. How should that affect my life? It ought to have the effect of me saying, look at what He's done for me. Look at what He's doing for me. And what can I expect that He's going to do for me? Friends, I'll give you two prophecies about the future. The world is going to be worse and God is going to be magnified more and more. One of the reasons why I am surprised by those things is because my mind hasn't been transformed as it should be. I get surprised sometimes, friends, by the folly of man. And God help me, sometimes I stand back in shock at the mercy of Almighty God. I really shouldn't be. Because, friends, what should I expect from man? Sin. And what should I expect from God? A perfect, holy, righteous will. How do I prove that? By presenting my body unto Him, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in His sight. How do I make sure that I don't look like the water in this bottle? By transforming my mind through the things that He's given unto us. And how do I prove Him, friends? By looking forward in expectation to all that is coming with the highest joy that no matter how great it's been, it's going to be better. No matter how righteous I've ever seen Him, He's going to be more. And no matter how good you've ever thought of Him, friends, He's more than that. Sometimes when I lay down at night, And I close my eyes. I try to picture what the throne of God must look like. Friends, in all my wildest imagination, it pales in comparison to the reality. You know why? Because I know just a little bit. And who He is is so big. He's so vast. He's so great. Which is why, friends, may our lives redound into His glory. In the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll close with this, He said, Let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Friends, I hope somebody never looks at me and sees me as a light that's gone out. They see me as no different than this world because, friends, we have a light and a treasure that goes beyond words. Sometimes we don't, or at least I don't, focus on the words when I sing them. I want to read... The words to one of the songs that we sang this morning. Great is the Lord our God, and let His praise be great. He makes His church, churches, His abode, His most delightful seat. In Zion, 
God is known, a refuge in distress. How bright has his salvation shone through all her palaces. When kings against her joined and saw the Lord was there, in wild confusion of the mind they fled with hasty fear. Oft have our fathers told, our eyes have often seen, how well our God secures the fold where his own sheep have been. In every new distress, will to his house repair, will call to mind his wondrous grace, and seek deliverance there. May the Lord should bless you with my prayer. We're going to stand together and sing a song in conclusion. Publish an open door to the church. If one more here that would like to join the church, it's time to sing, and we'll also have a handshake, and we'll also know what you're not going to grab.